This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 467 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Tori and Anthony Gonzalez. Now, this is going to be the first part of a two-part series I'm doing on the attacks in Parkland, Florida at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. As many of you that have followed the podcast for a while know, I did a similar thing on the Pulse attacks a few months ago. And the whole goal is to get the voices, the actual men and women, and in this case, children that were involved in the incident. What breaks my heart when we have an event in schools, especially, is it becomes almost immediately a media frenzy and a political polarization on gun control or pro-guns and the actual voices and the trauma of the, the people involved are pretty much discarded for these conversations to be had. So their stories are lost. Their ability to process and grieve is pushed aside so that cameras can report on the event and politicians can kind of push their agendas. So I wanted to tell the story of the people. Now, Anthony and Tori's story is incredibly powerful for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Tori was at the high school. As a student, her boyfriend, Joaquin Oliver, was one of the 17 murdered. Tori's father, Anthony, was one of the responding firefighters and was acting as battalion chief that day, so was one of the first officers on scene. So you have a double parallel. You have responder and victim slash patient, and then you also have father and daughter. So you can imagine how harrowing that must have been. So learning from the children, the kids that were at the school, learning from the responders, we can take away lessons. We can hear the stories of the people in the school, and we can take that human element and apply it to our own communities as parents, as responders, as teachers, and hopefully prevent or at least be prepared for an event like that happening, God forbid, in our own towns or cities or counties. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, but most importantly, leave a rating. I don't do this for some sort of accolades. Every single five-star rating the podcast gets, it elevates it on the kind of virtual ladder, therefore making it easier to find, more visible for others. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. And so all I ask is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them, because I know many of these episodes will save lives. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Tori and Anthony Gonzalez. Enjoy. Well, I just want to say thank you. We're sitting here, and everyone listening, yes, there is a soundtrack in the back. There's not a band playing. We're just uh, in a quiet corner. Jungle out the window is beautiful, but yes, there is a, a soundtrack playing. But we're in Fort Lauderdale. I'm sitting with uh, Anthony and Tori. Thank you so much for trusting me to talk to you today. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. So I want to start at the very, very beginning. So that means 
your dad. <laughs> so, Anthony, tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Well, well uh, I was born in Long Island, New York, uh, Smithtown area is where I grew up. And um, total of five of us in the family. And the dynamic room was my dad was always a worker and you know, my mom did work for a little while, but it got to a point that I can remember because I can only remember back so far. But it became a while where she was, you know, she was the caretaker of the family, if you will. Took care of everybody, like most moms do, you know. So, uh, that, that's what I remember a lot about her. So, the dynamic was was uh, the caring and whatnot and the dad always working. So, I don't know if you can kind of get that perspective of that's what I was kind of used to. And, you know, my brothers, we were, were all uh, three brothers and two sisters. So, the three of us kind of did our thing. My oldest brother, you know, whatnot, you know, normal pranks. You know, in uh, fights, you know, <laughs> you got that kind of stuff. And, you know, my sister and uh, my older sister, they kind of did their thing too. So it wasn't, I don't know, kind of point of dynamic of them. I mean, we were just being typical kids, you know, growing up. And I don't remember anything crazy happening drastic-wise or, you know, just what seemed to me like a normal normal childhood. Right now, you know, you're obviously very... Yeah, very fit even now. Um, we seem to become similar age. So back then, what kind of sports were you playing as a kid? <laughs> well, I was a little bit of a shy kid. You know, the uh, the shyness is still kind of there today. But, you know, if you were to see me then and see what I am now, you wouldn't think I'm the same person. You're an extrovert now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, maybe that's what it is. You grow up, you learn to deal with some things. But back then, I tried out Little League for a little while because I love baseball. I still love baseball to this day. And uh, that was where I was at, you know playing in the yard with my Tonka trucks and, you know, I was a boy's boy playing in the yard with matchbox cars, this whole thing. So, you know, it was baseball was really the only thing that I got into. You know, I did a little bit of high school football and, I mean, during recess kind of thing, but not not much stuff other than that. <laughs> right. Now, what about career aspirations? Were you influenced by any responders in, in family and or were you even dreaming of being a firefighter as a kid? Well, uh, to be honest, going through high school, actually, when I first started high school, I wanted to be a heavy equipment operator. So Hence that was kind of my drive. But <laughs> living in a town of nothing but volunteer fire departments, you know, you'd hear the whistle go off. I would, at the same time, would chase fire trucks, see when they hear them coming, and we go, you know, my bike and go ahead and chase them down to see what they were doing. So there was, you know, that little subtle interest at times. But you know, my, my desire was to be a heavy equipment operator. Even in my high school ring, there's a bulldozer on it. <laughs> really so sure yeah but and then but i get to do that today believe it or not it kind of comes back circle back into me doing operating some heavy equipment uh that i do today and when we get to that point i can touch into what i do with that but i think the neighborhood might the lady or excuse me the gentleman that lived across the street from me was a uh, the old ex-fire chief of my fire department at the time where i joined that i did join the volunteer up there that's what kickstarted the career his son was down the street on the corner and then the guy to the left of him, if you're facing his house, was a volunteer. So he would always leave with the blue light on, going to the firehouse, and you hear the whistle go off. So you know there was a call. So you know, it was kind of it was there. I so mean, that was a little seed that just sort of got planted, and it just grew. I'm the only one in my family that's a firefighter. Now I always ask volunteers this: some people volunteer and they live in BFE, as people like to call it, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's totally justified. You know, there's you know. One stop sign, a, a post office, and you know, oh, yeah. fifty a, houses. One square mile was my yeah. town. <laughs> but what I find in the U.S. a lot of times now is that you'll find volunteer fire 
departments in areas that are very densely populated where we probably should have a career department. What was the dynamic? What was the kind of layout where you were? Pretty much similar to that. Like I said, we're one square mile. It wasn't, um, I don't remember the population by any means, <laughs> but it wasn't a lot of people. And uh, again, it's Long Island where I'm from, there was nothing but volunteer fire departments. So some areas were a little more populated than others, but it, it's the culture, I guess you could say, for the Long Island area. As you got get a little closer to the city, where you'd have that transition to FDNY and obviously the city firemen versus the volunteers, which is still strong today. So I guess it's just, that's just the neighborhood. Even if it's grown, you know, they're still going to stay volunteer to my knowledge. Now they have trouble responding to calls just like some volunteer fire departments. But, you know, it's, uh, I guess like for us, Coral Springs, we were volunteer for a while when I first moved here. So tell me about that. We, I moved here and like I said, I started in Nesconset was where my, uh, fire service career kind of kicked off and that was about a year and a half almost two years of a volunteer up there and then we moved here you know we had to uh, my father wanted a new start so we came down here and then uh, come to find out we moved here in 91 it wasn't but for a few years later that I found out because like you just mentioned that you would think the town that we lived in was paid because of the size and all the amount of people that we had we had 1,000 people in there so when I moved here I wasn't in my mind that I was always told or known it to be a a career-oriented county. So come to find out a few years later, it was volunteer. So I joined in 95 to five years of volunteer to getting hired in 2000 to where I am today. So the, you volunteered for the county, then got hired for the city? I actually, I volunteered for Coral Springs, and then they okay. made the transition of uh, paid rescues, which is an ambulance for some, depending on where you are, and then uh, to the paid full paid fire department in, in the year 2000. Beautiful. Well, I'm talking to Chris. I already have talking, spoken to Chris and Frank. I have to re-speak to Chris and Frank because of a technical error. Um, but, you know, they have a, um, you know, an interesting story within that department, within that city that I think a lot of people should mirror. Um, you're in training now. So when you look back in hindsight, what was your training like and what were the fitness standards like when you got hired? Uh, it was a little dynamic. We uh, volunteer because it's volunteer slash to the career side of things. It was... Training was the station I happen to be at, which is Station Seventy One, is has the training tower there. So we on our scheduled nights, which forgive me, I can't remember off the top of my head. I want to say it was Wednesday nights we would go and train, and I don't say there was uh, there was some old guys there, full on beards. You know, it was a definitely different atmosphere back then. Volunteer versus career. You know, career has a lot more stringent rules, no facial hair. You know, for for the reasons, the policies in NFPA, et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that. But there was a variety of Jeez. I'm trying to think about some of the people that I'm dealing with because some people were out of shape. But because it's, again, if you want to go, maybe it's, I should ask the question to you is you want to talk about volunteer side of it or you want to talk about the, Let's talk the about career both. or is it blending it together because volunteer was different. Any, any schmo, no, no offense, could, you know, fill out an application, pass the test or whatnot and come on in and, and volunteer. I mean, the intent is there. So I say schmo, I don't mean disrespect to schmo. It's just, uh, you know, People want to volunteer sometime. You can meet certain qualifications. You, you can get become a volunteer. Obviously, career is a little bit more stringent. And being an instructor for a while and, and seeing people develop, and you wonder it's um, how they how some people do it. But it's uh, I mean to get back to your question, I guess I totally went off the topic. There was the training has obviously improved. It's a hundred percent. I mean from what it was to what it is today. The the care of the individual. Making sure that you're, um, you know, you're, you're healthy on, on all levels. 
You know, there's a lot more investment in the individual. Maybe that's the long or the short of it. Sorry for dragging it out. but No, you didn't drag it out. So I think that's one of the... <laughs> a lot of things in my mind to try to process it all and, and, and <laughs> think about a lot of things and what to say, what not to say without upsetting anybody. So oh, we also got the guy serenading us from the speaker. <laughs> yes, that's that guy <laughs> I think too. Over him. Um, no, but it is, it's one of those things that is a thing. Like who is going to show up to rescue your child? Is it going to be someone who maybe volunteer, maybe career, who's taken their job seriously and is in shape and is trained and is an environment that's enabled them to thrive? Or like you said, is it career or volunteer who hasn't been held to a standard, who is deconditioned, who has a giant beard where they can't even get a seal on the mask, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, you know, it's a hard thing to navigate because in reality, the standard should be the standard, but it is harder to ask people that you're not paying a penny to show up to, to be at that standard. Conversely, I find it very hard to understand why we can't ask people that we pay to be firefighters to hold a standard, and that happens in a lot of places around the world too. Yeah, I, I will say that our organization, it's for being a volunteer, we were very, very professional for volunteer. We were uh, uniforms certain way you know, I mean we would try to set a certain tone as um I'll say as professionals but that, you know they they had very high standards and a lot of people and I don't want to make it to seem that people didn't it's just a different classification of people that you would attract I guess you could say volunteer versus career so I don't want again I feel like I put some people down I don't want anybody to take it that way but we were very there was a lot of dedication you know volunteers are you know you got to look at a, a volunteer person Versus somebody of a career, they're doing it for nothing. That's got to speak volumes of, of their spirit and, and, you know, their personality, what they're willing to do for nothing. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I had a bunch of guys from Canada that on here that are all volleys and they're putting out content and training all the time. And, you know, they have their own podcast. I mean, it's it's incredible. So you have that, that diverse spectrum from, you know, people who are probably a liability on a fire to some volunteers that you would choose any day over some career people that don't take their job seriously. I can see that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring Tori into the picture. So sure. tell me when you became a father. Well, when were you born? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> December 18, 2000. Um, not too far from my birthday, which is New Year's Eve. So the whole world celebrates me for a little while. Uh, but it was Tori... Paint it back a little bit. I married my wife, and she had three children before Tori came along. So we had three. You know, people poke fun, or I even poke fun a little bit where it's uh, Insta family, just add Anthony, you know. And, you know, and my wife at the time wasn't able to get pregnant. So, and I didn't care. It wasn't, you know, I was very happy with what I had, and or what I have, excuse me. And, you know, I was going to take it. She's like, I can't have kids. You don't want to marry me, the whole thing. So, you know, lo and behold, a little while later, after dating for a little while, she wants wants me to come home for whatever reason. And I didn't think anything of it. Then she left a little thing out and said, wanted to show me. And, you know, I, I kind of blew it off because that was the last thing on my mind that because of what she had a medical condition and she wasn't able to get pregnant normally. Mm -hmm. So, lo and behold, she shows it to me and, you know... <laughs> And it was a little bit of a, you know, I don't want to say tiff, but there was, she was a little disappointed that I didn't come home because it was exciting. Mm -hmm. But again, it was the last thing on my mind. So, you know, I still, maybe there's a little guilt there that I have that I kind of brushed it off a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I probably shouldn't have, but again, and then uh, lo and behold, so it, it, with that, it was kind of, we was treating it as a miracle child because 
you know, she was not supposed to happen. Yeah. But she was coming in this world regardless. <laughs> Amazing. So that's uh, that's where it at. I mean, with where we are today, obviously, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but I don't want to steal her thunder. No, well, let's swing <laughs> over to Tori. So one thing I've, I've only had really perspective once, and that's my own son talking about what it's like to be a child in a firefighter family. So tell me about that growing up. Like what, what was that like for you, that family dynamic that, that probably a lot of your friends didn't really get to experience good and bad? I let my friends in a little bit. They, they got to sit in the truck or do whatever, you know. They loved that my dad was a firefighter. I always went around from as young as I can remember. My dad's a hero. My dad saves lives. Like I would just, I was boasting to everyone. My dad's so cool. He's, he does this, he does that. He's a hero. Like literally that's all that I would say about my dad. And I would cry every morning that he left because he'd be gone for so long. Definitely a daddy's girl. Um, <laughs> But I've always been proud. I think that's that's the biggest thing. Was I always held pride in in knowing that not a, not everyone can say that that their family go, literally saves lives for a living. So now, what are some of the things you remember where he wasn't able to be there? Because some, I think you talked about guilt. One of the, the guilt elements of being a mother or a father in the fire service, I think, is that. Christmas is a very dynamic day. <laughs> it might be December 26th. Is 25th your birthday too? 31st. 31st? New Year's Eve. Okay, New Year's, that's when you said about people yeah. celebrating. So we have that, like, you know, Father's Day, all those things. Um, what are some of the things you remember where he wasn't able to be there and, and maybe you were even disappointed? Because I think it's important to hear from the family the sacrifices that you guys make. It was definitely hard sometimes, but I can remember... As the years went on, the holidays would shift that he would be there or not be there. Christmas is like his favorite day ever. Mine too. Ever. Like our whole house is lights, 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 lights. The whole neighborhood <laughs> is like, who lives there? Um, so I feel like I can remember him. I feel like there was only, what, one or two years that you were not there on Christmas? Well, yeah. Christmas, uh, yeah, but as you know, the, the shifts were rotating, but it's, um, it's, it's hard to actually to sit here and even for me to think about stuff. I, I guess it and think about some of the things that I missed on her on her level as far as maybe her first steps and you know things like that for for being at work. But I can't um, remember that. You know, I you know it's it's unique for us come the holidays because we we my wife's Jewish, you know, I'm Catholic, so we, we celebrate everything. Yes, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so there's really this, you know it's. Um, not to miss, so I mean, there is a variety. So yeah, there's some days that I was there, and some days I'm not. I, I can't pinpoint one particular day. Very simply, though, I, the most that I can remember when you ask that is like maybe him not being at dinner sometimes, and that's right. where it's like a weird feeling at the table where he's always at the head and then he's not there. Yeah, but that's what I. That's the first thing that came to mind when you asked. But I think we made up for a lot of that too. I try to, you know, we celebrate holidays and we'll change them you know instead of celebrating them the day of we do some stuff the day before i mean it's still to try to make up for that i mean that's you know the the nature of our business when uh we have to work the schedules and you know we don't get time off and you know we don't shut down like police or whatnot we, we have to work you know other than a vacation day or a swap or a shift trade or whatever you want to call it you know that's that's the only way you get those days off where you <coughs> dial a kelly they call it <laughs> <laughs> you know and that's you get some trouble for calling out on a holiday but <laughs> Well, Tori, with with you, same as I asked your dad. So, firstly, 
school age, what about sports? Were you playing any sports? Were you artistic? You know, what were your passions? I was passions? always, always very artistic. Uh, it took me a long time to actually call myself an artist, but I was definitely drawing and painting from a young age. Only sport I really got into was lacrosse, which I actually really enjoyed in middle school and high school. But I stopped playing because girls can be, you know, a little mean. What? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but I stopped that for a reason. I'm, I'm, I'm an artist at heart, and I did that my entire life. That's all I can remember doing. Don't forget cheerleading. Oh, I was a cheerleader. I forget about that. Have you suppressed mm. it? Is it one of yeah, those things you've Yeah, I, I don't even. <laughs> but the cheerleading for her was very active because she was a flyer. So oh, you know, the tumbling and whatnot, the acrobatic air stuff. How did I forget so, that? Because I'm not a cheerleader was, at heart, but we, I did. I was pretty good. I was pretty we, good. <laughs> all of our kids did cheerleading. So every one of my girls, yeah. 12, 13 years of cheerleading, I was a cheer dad. Sorry. Take your thunder. Go no, ahead, you sorry. are a cheer dad. No, that's, that's what it was. That was <laughs> he always didn't there. miss games. That's something. Yeah, he did that's, not miss games. You know, always there. But don't, that's athletic-wise, yeah. I mean, between yeah. that and lacrosse. No, thank you for reminding me. Yes, I did that for like 15 years. I was a cheerleader for a long time. That's a substantial amount to yeah. not mention. Oh, my gosh. Um it just wasn't my favorite time, but I yeah, did it. It was tough. I mean, I, yeah, I'll, I'll keep going. I'll let you go. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm okay on that. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so earlier, like middle school, early, early high school, what about career aspirations for you? I went all over the place, um, but they were all in the same theme of healing. That's always been my thing is giving back. Um, when I was younger, maybe 10 10 years old, I had a pretty major surgery um, of the cervical spine where oh, really? I, I had a intramedullary tumor removed, like vaporized. They had to like remove bones, put them back, put hard wire. They took the vertebrae, took them and had to put them back in and Damn. put plates different in things. there. So, she had to learn how to walk again. That's it was, a pretty it was a nightmare massive surgery. Anyway. Yeah. So waking up like paralyzed and not knowing that I have to relearn how to walk, have to relearn how to feed myself and do all of these things. Uh, I remember my nurses the most. And that was from then on, I was like, you know what? I really want to work with kids. I want to be a pediatric nurse. I want to be that person that makes someone smile when they're going through a hard time. Because I, I remember Sheila, Sheila, my favorite nurse, <laughs> because she just made that time so much better, so much easier. Um, Being away from home, too. We were in uh, Joe DiMaggio, uh, not, excuse me, <laughs> Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. That's where the surgery was done. So we were there for what, two, two weeks you were there? I remember being there the entire summer, somewhere. Un well, it was until there we went because then we came back home and it was Joe DiMaggio yes. back home's rehab yeah. center. So it was, yeah, go ahead, sorry. But I, I mentioned that because I went back to the cheerleading field in a wheelchair to like learn the routine, just to sit there and watch what was going on. I uh, went to school with a walker a couple times. And anyway, it led me to knowing that I have that strength and that power to give to someone else. Um, from then on, it was like, okay, well, maybe I want to be a therapist because I was in therapy from sixth grade on and and maybe I want to do this and that and, and maybe I want to be a vet or maybe I want to... Then it became art therapy. Maybe I want to be an art therapist because I love art and I also want to help people. And now I'm a yoga teacher, I'm a Reiki practitioner, and I'm an artist where I create healing, physical healing tools. So I'm, I kind of put a bunch of it together. But always, always, always my goal was to give back and to do what I can for other people. So question, you had the surgery at 10. Yes. What, mentally and physically, what was that journey like from, I'm assuming you cheerleaded 
cheerled? Is that the past tense? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, no. no. <laughs> Prior to the surgery, yeah. life. what was that journey like to actually being able to fly again? I mean, that's a pretty traumatic surgery in a very dangerous place. And to get back to that, that's a hell of a journey. It's crazy that that trauma has been pushed aside because of the bigger trauma. And I'm still looking back sometimes knowing that I've not processed that at 10 years old. Um, but I do remember specific moments. Like I remember the first time getting back up in the air. I can see it in my head right now. Like getting up there was just a half. It was just a simple thing. But I was like, holy. I'm not going to say You can it. say whatever you okay. want here, by the way. Just, just in <laughs> okay, case cool, it comes you. out, you can. Yeah. <laughs> I, I usually myself. do. So. <laughs> That's what I was like, holy shit. I really just did that. And it, it was another moment of just being so proud. Uh, but definitely difficult. Um, I can remember sitting in the hospital unable to even sit up on my own and just seeing my mom crying on the floor, you know, next to the bed. And like that for me, like that's something that I still have to process because as a kid, I'm just like, mom, like I'm trying my hardest. Like, why are you sad? Um, but I just know that it was all love, um, but definitely a physical toll. It was terrifying to not know if I was going to walk again. If I was going to have to use a walker or a wheelchair, I did use a wheelchair for a long time. I went home with it. After being a cheerleader, after doing all these things, I'm like, what happened to my legs? What happened to my neck? What What is this? Um, but really, I just... It just showed me my strength. I'm constantly in my life being reminded of how strong I am from a young age. So I come back to gratitude for that. I can I, I can talk about the hard stuff for a long time, but I don't need to because like I really see the value in that experience. Yeah. Now, what? How much value do you give to gratitude? I'll give. I'll preface this question. I put up. I like to post a lot of positive things, not not blindly positive with a message. Mm -hmm. with, you know, not kind of a real world positivity. And. One I posted the other day, someone said, and it was like two or three people that joined into this little thread, and I don't respond to this, but it was just interesting watching. I got accused, I've never heard this th term before, of toxic positivity. That is a thing, but I don't believe that you would do it. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah so, you know, but again, it was like, for this particular thing, it wasn't at all. But the point of that post was when you are truly in a state of gratitude, and I'm not saying it's easy to get there, but when you're in a state of gratitude, I personally think that it's impossible to be anxious and it's possible to be impossible to be depressed because whatever's going on in your life, you're sitting on that beach looking out of the vast ocean, seagull shits on your head, whatever happens, you know, but, but yeah. you are, you are, life. You're, yeah, you're in <laughs> the moment, yes. you know, yes. and, uh, at that moment, I think that's where we need to return and we're so distracted by so many things. So tell me about gratitude and, and how you found that kind of realization within yourself. This is my whole, this is like my world put one word on it. It's gratitude. Genuinely, that is if I'm having a panic attack or feeling like I'm going to get there or I'm just overwhelmed. For me, I could just look at a single tree and say, I'm grateful that this exists that like I, I could go into so much on the gratitude but seriously it always brings me back to the present moment and that for me is really important because through everything we've gone through it's so easy to live in the past or to worry about the future but you really only have this one moment you really this one moment where we're sitting here at this table this is all we have we don't ha even have 10 minutes ago no or 10 minutes from now we have right now so 
why be anywhere but here? And I think gratitude does that for me every single day. I start my morning and I sit outside in my backyard and I look at the trees and I look at the lake and I say, I'm grateful to be here regardless of the struggles. Yes, I'm still struggling with depression, but in that moment, I get what you're saying that there's no way. I could even be crying and say, you know what? I'm really grateful that I have the ability to experience this emotion. Like I'm human and, and this is this is an amazing moment to cry, to release this pain. You know, I find gratitude in every single space that I can. It is my life force. Yeah. Yes, literally. <laughs> That's everything to me. And I found it through all of this pain, really. Because losing my best friend, I always remind myself, every time I get sad that, oh, he's not here, oh, he's not here, I say, but he was. But I did get to spend that time. I had every second that I did, and without that, I wouldn't be here. So... That is always, that's it, gratitude. And it's so powerful as well because um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, interviewing him, and uh, there's another friend of mine who lost his son as an infant. He got pediatric cancer and passed away. There's another friend of mine that I interviewed that had a similar thing. I think his son was three when he passed, if I've got that right. I still can see their faces. I know their names. I know who they are because they lived on past the organic matter that we are i know joaquin's name because of the story that, that that happened after you know so and even with the crying when i went through my divorce i was a single dad it was you know i didn't experience what you did but as, as we have to be careful we can't compare traumas i remember leaning into the crying i would deliberately turn on those songs because I knew once I was done crying, you can only cry for so long. I challenge anyone out there, try crying for a month. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> There's a certain point where you're yeah. just done. So yeah, even like you said, the experience of that release, once you were done with that moment of, of grief, there was that kind of uptick again that you could kind of take a deep breath and be like, all right, I see you. I feel it now. That's an entirely different conversation that I have a lot is how important it is to express. Like so many people are afraid of crying or afraid of being angry and it's so necessary as a human being to appreciate the range of emotions that we have to allow that because where else is it going to go if you're happy all the time you're really not you're really not yeah so. and there's no contrast to it. i mean it sounds you know the, the cliche thing what there's no light without darkness but it's true Balance. as an artist you know that better than anyone yes like, how can <laughs> we see shade if we don't know what dark is mm -hmm. yep yeah all right well anthony i want to get to the preparation, the, the the prior, the you know what Coral Springs did well, the the interaction between FD and PD because I think it's an important thing. Before we do pre Valentine's Day, tell me about Joaquin. Tell me about what an amazing man. Tell me about how you fell in love through oh face paint. Oh gosh, <laughs> um, he followed me first. <laughs> he did love you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Actually, just I read a poem uh, to my friend yesterday about this, but the second that I met this kid, it was like, there's something in you that's in me. Like we just, we saw each other as reflections. Um, really like, I don't want to get too otherworldly, but literally meeting him made me question my existence on this planet. And I, I remember getting visions of like, do people come from stars? Do certain people come from this star and, and they're meant to meet? And it was like, I'm 15 years old and I'm sitting here thinking about 
this is my soulmate. Before I even knew that I had those feelings for him, I just knew that he was my person. I knew that this is someone that's going to be here. This is someone that's supposed to be here. And I never had that feeling before where it was like, this is meant to happen right now. And it was, it, it was instant. It was like, I see you. I know who you are. You, in your eyes, I can see me. And it was, it was a very crazy experience. Um, unreal. And he knew that too. It was like, we just, we didn't even have to say it. Um, so when we actually did get together, I remember him saying, well, I was sitting trying to have the conversation. Like, I don't like the word boyfriend, girlfriend. Those are, that's gross to me. I don't want to say that. And I didn't know how to say that to him without offending him. And there was one day he's just sitting there. He's like, you're not my girlfriend. And I was like, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, you're my soulmate. And I said, okay, you know, like we're on the same page. Um, but really there are really no words for it. Um, I'm, I'm, I forgot I mentioned the poem. So before we got together, a while before we got together, I remember writing this whole poem about life after death and life between death and rebirth and all these things that I had never even thought about. I'm 15 years old and I'm writing about living in stars and, and these crazy things that I couldn't even understand what I was putting on paper. So I know that there was something uh, kind of channeled through that. Um, but moral of that story is I know we were meant to meet and there are no true words for the connection. There is not a label that I could put on it other than soulmate, if that's gonna what's going to connect to people. Um, but I feel like we're the same person split in two, uh, showing each other whether it's the good things or the dark things that we need to see. Even now I see him in me, new things that show up. I'm like, he, he gifted that to me. Um, there really are no words for the connection that we have, still have 100%. I see him all the time and he's there. So beautiful. Well, you met my wife before. That was, that's my second marriage. I had the same thing. First date, sitting, it was, we, we didn't meet at a bar, but we met at a bar, like mm-hmm. went through match.com and then decided to meet there. Kind of awkward because she said she was just going to see a band. I assume with her friends. So I brought a friend along. Mm. She was on her own. So the three of us went on the first date. <laughs> oh my God. <gosh. laughs> But yeah, I mean, we lived together from day two onwards. It was the same thing. So I can absolutely understand what you're talking about. Well, I I forgot to mention that we didn't get together like as a couple, I guess, quotations, couple, um, until less than a year before Valentine's Day. We were best friends, though, for years. Um, And I remember him telling one of our close friends, uh, you know, I'm just waiting till after high school. I'm just waiting because I don't want anything to get in the way here. You know, I'm, I know that I'm going to spend my life with her, so I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait it out. And then something, one day we just kissed and we're like, what? Like, <laughs> what? We were trying to hide this this whole time? Like, it was really funny. Um, but I'm, I'm also gratitude that that just slipped up because I, I don't know. We don't know what would have happened otherwise. So, best friend. Before anything else, that's what it is. So the footage in After Parkland of the you doing the face paint on him, you guys were already friends. Was that right before the kiss? Then no, no, no. But we were we were already friends. There was no kissing then. We were not together then. <laughs> um, but I was just ooey gooey inside. Still, I was going to say you could see the yeah. You saw it in his eyes too. I and remember. Yours. Well, well, yes, but he was like just somewhere else he was somewhere else and he was recording it and i was like he wanted to capture that so badly (laughs) um we just we had special moments like that all the time but i'm so 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 
grateful again that we have a lot actually captured. I have so many captures, uh, pictures, videos, uh, audio messages, text messages. Yeah, irreplaceable. Absolutely. Well, and you can see through the little snapshots that we got of the outside looking in. Yeah. Um, of the love of your group, whether it was Joaquin, whether it was, you know, his, his team, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there was just so much. So you guys are, you know, in high school. So tell me about, um, the preparation from a responder's point of view. God forbid something like that happens. Well, um, our city was, I don't say aggressive. We started doing active killer slash shooter training. Years prior to this, you know, we were kind of, uh, I don't know if we got an insight on it or whatnot, but I remember distinctively doing some training on more of on our end is the, the trauma side of it, patient care or PD, and we kind of do some joint stuff uh, prior to this. But it wasn't crazy, but we were a little bit more advanced, I would say, than some of the other departments in, in the area, you know, but... Um, you know, think leading up to that day, did it did it help? Eh, maybe it did for us because our city and some of our cops were a little bit more prepared to do what was needed. Then, and I don't want to, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but you can just if you follow the media and you pay attention to some of the things that was said, it, it seems to be not too far off. Oh, some people, maybe it was just a prepared level, money, finances, whatever it was, was a reasoning for it. You could see the difference between people being prepared and then people that weren't. Yeah. So yeah, were you doing the safe training back, back then? The which one was it? The safe training. We, that's what we did up um, in my departments. It was the ones where a couple of medics lock on to PD. They clear a room. You um, go in, supposedly drag out or you know tourniquet, whatever you need to do. Yeah, they, we the have patient. SWAT medics that that work for the fire department that work with PD. So they'll team up together, and then if they need a uh, a uh, oh, forgive me, I'm. Um, the name is skipping my mind, but we'll have a special assignment group of a couple of medics that will tag on with the SWAT medic and officers to go ahead and, you know, treat as they would say, still clear a building, if you will, treat and then maybe extract type of thing. So. Right. And then what about um, purely from a tactical medicine point of view, um, tourniquets, you know, bleeding control? Had you had we more have, of a tactical medicine training at that point? A, an active killer bag that has the tourniquets, that has the stop the bleed, that has the... Uh, the gauze, the packing gauze, and that kind of stuff to go ahead and, and treat search injury related to that type of uh, trauma. Right. So, okay. Yeah. You know, so we all have all those now. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but we have that on every unit now, you know, yeah. after the fact, but we've had that stuff even prior to. Yeah. And that's what I got. So, obviously, like I said, I'm redoing the conversation with Chris and Frank. I had the honor of listening to them the first time. Um, and, you know, I know Chris from the collaborative, so I know that he's been. You know, aggressive in the mental health side and the physical definitely fitness for sure. He's doing a great job. Yeah, um, with the um, with the with the law enforcement officers that we trust with our children's lives, and actually, it's a big good place to kind of put in my little personal story. So, I had a couple of incidents at the kids' school. So, when my son was in elementary school, like I said, I was at a doctor's office appointment, went to drop him off. Right when I got there. Alarms started going off. Um, they were told, Mr. Gearing, sorry, you have to stay in here now. They locked the doors behind me. In all the code red training that they'd done, this was the first time they thought they had a legitimate incident. I was in the kind of 
copy room, I guess you call it, you know, and looking at the paper guillotine, thinking, all right, I could cut this off and make a blade. And I realized at that point how vulnerable our children are, how vulnerable our teachers are. And the only person I believe that at that po- moment in that school that had communication with anyone on the outside was the principal. So everyone else was just clueless, you know. Um, so that was a terrifying insight about three weeks later, I think it was, if I got the timeline right, this was after 2018, after what you guys went through, um, we had a shoot in Ocala. I think it was a very, very different dynamic personally. I think it was a cry for help. Wasn't the same intent, I don't think. It was one shot fired, I think at the ground as well. Weapon was placed down, kid gave up, you know, thank goodness. But our town got to kind of like see a snapshot. From the SRO perspective, I had an incident where my son um, was, as we talked about, was going through some depression, you know, was was sad. And through some horrible choices by his principal in the SRO, he ended up being Baker active for three days, locked in a psych facility because he was crying at his desk. So I saw firsthand what the wrong person in that job can do. And as a tactical athlete myself and someone who does martial arts and shoots and keeps in shape, I know what that police officer needs to look like too. And I don't see that in my son's school. So again, not blaming, I wasn't there, but I think a very important tangent is I see that sometimes the schools get the overtime guy, the retiree, and I think it needs to be the complete opposite. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I think that the school would be the last place that people would think something would happen. So from their perspective is maybe that's it. Maybe the guy's riding out retirement and it's the easy gig. You know, that very well could have been the mindset pre Valentine's Day. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm fine if he's, you know, if he's I, a retiree badass, but yeah, I mean, it, it changed now because you know, you have, from what I'm seeing, you have officers now that want to be in the schools for the right reasons. Cause they want to protect the kids and, you know, pre that uh, with with our particular school is I have a we have a lot of experience with that school. All my kids went there, so I've had a an opportunity to see a lot of officers come and go. And I can't speak for all of them, other than the last one. And that's my, you know, I, I can voice my personal opinion about what he didn't do, and tied into training. Um, uh, the word I don't, <laughs> word I was going to use is uh, shit the bed when it came time for him to do what he needed to do and he didn't do it. Um, but this is my, those are my feelings and nothing else is influenced by it. And I don't want anybody to take it because of what I do, but you know, it's, uh, they're sworn that they're taking an oath just like I take an oath to protect, you know, so I believe in that oath. And I'll do everything I can to protect, even if it is laying down my life. I'll, I'll do that, just as I expect him to do the same. So I'm not sure if I answered your question because I get a little bit of, little off track when we talk about an in particular person that his only job is to protect the kids in the school and have their best interests and help them, mentor them. You know, they look up to us, whether it's police or fire to an extent. I mean, nowadays it's a little bit different for, for certain things, but those kids, you could really set them straight. And put them down the right road just by being a, you know, lay down the law, but be a, a good officer and, uh, you know, and actually care for people and not just you know, do the job for the right reasons, I guess. I don't know if I'm going off beat, but, yeah, you know. Well, and I think that's, that's just it. Again, 
not picking on that one individual solely obviously is a product of his environment and everything else hiring practices True. training standards all these things but it's an important conversation we have to have and it's not even let's forget him about him for a second it's something i hold myself to like i always talk about there's a phrase uh, john spiro says you know would you want you rescuing you great question i prefer to go even further how would you feel if your family died because the rescuer hadn't trained or wasn't in shape you know that's the real thing so Absolutely. if we're not putting the best you know firefighters the best you know school nurses the psychologists in the schools that know what they're doing then you know we're we're setting our kids up for failure and obviously you know the ripple effect of that yeah for when sure. you when you talk about your son crying and being sent away and how wrong of a situation that is that brings me to not only the resource officer but everyone in administration there was not one person who did their job pre even pre valentine's day with the shooter himself was always in something at school and nobody wanted to take care of him nobody wanted to say hey kid like what can we do for you it was someone else is going to take care of you someone and it was down the line down the line down the line nobody wanted to do their job so it's beyond that of course he was one person who could have done their job but nobody did their job so that's where it's really frustrating that's where mental health is a huge conversation where if there's a kid that's misbehaved it's not because he wants to terrorize someone it's because he is he's having inner turmoil that needs to be addressed he and or she. sorry yes yeah, well i'm that's thinking why i know we're focusing on they they need to be addressed as a human being and that's something i struggle with a lot is that nobody just wanted to care for that person and that that was the simple thing that could have been done a long time before that yeah i think one of the one of the best questions i've heard recently and i think this is spot on people say oh what's wrong with you Instead of saying, what happened to you? Or how can I help you? Or yeah. what do you need? Or yeah. anything else? And that's, that's, not in like that's, a that's the quick way. one. Is what's yeah. wrong with you? That's yeah. like the auto response, if you will, when somebody's not a, behaving a certain way. It's a good point. Yeah. Because, I mean, when I see these events, of course, it's absolutely heartbroken, breaking, unacceptable. You know, there's no other emotion to have but anger and grief. However, the answer is to reverse engineer. How did this toddler get to point x you know what i mean and if we're talking and we'll get into this you know but that's what i saw post parkland was this polarizing gun issue and in the meantime nothing's getting fixed and you guys you know 14 days later are going back to school with nothing resolved somehow you know it's yeah so we'll, we'll talk about that but but one of the big things i talk about on here is reverse engineering solutes um issues that we have and also countries that are doing it better you know and i think that the as long as we focus on the my not the minutia it's the wrong wrong choice of words but one singular element of a of a bigger picture that we're never going to find the solution you know i think i had um a guy lieutenant colonel dave grossman on who's a army ranger psychologist and he talked about the impact of video games and i was absolutely hand on my heart one of the people that rolled my eyes when i first that violent video games that's not doing it when you look into how the army conditioned their soldiers and you have reward system and operant conditioning and you understand the psychology behind it absolutely it contributes then you add sleep deprivation how many gamers sleep you know play through the night now you add psychosis now you add in psych meds 
you know and so there's all these and if we're just talking about one thing we're not getting to the root at all so i would love to kind of talk about that day as in depth or as not in depth as you want i don't want to drag you know use any way you don't want to go um but then we can obviously talk about you know the things that we should be doing the conversations that should have happened the the things that you the adults of the world should have been discussing instead of you know what were so valentine's day 2018 kind of in your you know your own pace wherever you want to go lead me through that day well it started off very beautifully i will say that a bunch of gratitude for the morning i always say that uh, because i remember the day before that i was like you know what i think i'm gonna say that valentine's day is my favorite holiday i remember because I was like, I'm all about love. And it doesn't matter. It could be your friend. It could be your mom. It could be whoever. But express yourself on that day. And I showed up to school. And Joaquin's sitting there on the bench waiting with some flowers in his hand. Just waiting anxiously. Like, like get out of the car. Get out of the car. Get out of the car. <laughs> I'm ready to give this to you. He's a hopeless romantic. Huh? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> More than that. <laughs> um, and we were late to school. To school. We were late to class. Just walking through the hallway like going through each other's bags like where did we get each other this you know silly high school stuff um i remember that clearly and then there was a fire alarm second period and you know that's okay normal whatever we go outside we go back inside and then there's another fire alarm fourth period and we're like okay this is weird and i remember not i wasn't aware of anything going on where I was just like, okay, this is weird. We're having another drill. Um, and then there's chatter. And there's chatter about there being a false drill. And then there's more chatter. There's more chatter. And then we're moving further away from our normal space for the fire alarm. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. And then there's a cop car sitting by the softball field. I'm like, okay, that's weirder. And then there's helicopters. You know, I'm just, I'm pointing out the triggers that I remember. Because that's how I'm going chronological. Um, and then before I know it, I'm out at Walmart hearing that it's what it is, getting calls from my family saying this is on the news, you know, this is serious. Um, and I just remember yelling, like, stop calling me. I can't find Joaquin. That was like it, like, stop calling me. I'm trying to call him. Uh, everyone, I'm fine. I'm good. Stop bothering me. Cause I, I also didn't see the Something in me saw the the weight of it and understood the truth behind it. But, of course, there's that also that huge shock blanket where it's like, I'm focused on this one thing. I don't even know that I'm focused on. Um, but, yeah, that was... I evacuated. I was safe. Found Joaquin's best friend. And we stuck together um, to Walmart, then to Publix because it was just too crowded. My mom picked us up. I remember seeing, going home, seeing stuff on the news. For me, this is all like very surface level um, because I can't even, I still haven't processed a lot of actual feelings from that actual day. Uh, I don't remember a lot. I'm telling you what I remember. <laughs> um, went home and then when it became time that I couldn't just sit at home anymore, uh, I met Joaquin's family at a different Marriott um, where families of missing children were. And for me, that was already not great. Even watching the news, I remember seeing someone from his class come out 
and was being interviewed and I was like, okay, if she's in his class and she's okay and he's not answering, that was like, that was immediately when it clicked because she was also on the news saying, and I was, ma- I was with him and he was making Valentine's for his girlfriend and then she described that she saw him dead. So for me, that was like the moment, didn't want to admit it to myself, but admitted it to myself subconsciously. Um, and I remember spending the next 10 hours shaking my leg and staring at the floor. I can remember the pattern of the carpet in the conference room because all I was thinking about was either, am I going to have a, you know, a reunion? Is this, is this what I'm preparing for? Or am I preparing for the rest of my life dealing with this loss? Like that, that was already, that was, I was very aware of that. Um, and that was all for 10 hours. We didn't get news until 2 a.m. I got there, don't even know, 2 a.m. And I'm just, I remember sitting on the floor, a group of his friends had showed up, quite a few, you know, friendly guy, lots of friends. <laughs> um, and someone's mom had come back in, and all I remember is her saying that he didn't make it. I remember going home, my sister and my mom laying in my bed with me, And I don't know how I slept, but I did. And then it was a different world that I woke up to. Just awful. Well, I want to take the focus to your dad because the the lens that I understand is is your father's. Now, when the shooting happened in Ocala, my bonus boy, my stepson's school thought they had a shooting too there was miscommunication and i had texts there's someone shooting the school i'm hiding in the library don't call me now he might hear us kind of thing so i'm blessed that that was wrong it was a false alarm so tell me about that day for you not only were you tory's father seeing that happen in the high school but you were also on the rig that day as a responder well, for me that day, I was actually a step-up battalion chief that day, at the time. And for me, I, I, the story is, is some things come and go, so I may jump around a little bit because it's, it's kind of hard to piecemeal some of the stuff together. Piecemeal, piecemeal, whatever it is. Uh, but for us, it was our life scan day, so I had gotten my physical in the morning, and I literally had just finished... Got my results back. Everything was good that I remember anyway. And uh, put my pants on, actually, because I wear a radio strap. So I had just put the radio on. And uh, I don't know, probably within two or three minutes, the, the uh, call went out. And I, you know, you did that one other thing. I just, I just hear what I hear or heard. And I was shooting at Douglas, I'm saying, in the back of my mind. They rang out, you know, rang out again. So, I, and where the, Life scan was, I was literally, it took me about three minutes to get to the school. I was the second chief that arrived on that school. So from the, the life scan, I just got in the truck and I drove. You know, I have a hard time remembering. I like, I believe I reflected and thought about Tori for a second, but it was a snapshot. I was instant focused, first responder mode. Because it wasn't too long after uh, getting the second dispatch, if you will, or repeated information that it became a little bit more apparent that this was a real deal. And uh, so I was just trying to keep my cool and, and you know, and, and drive the truck by myself. So I, obviously I, I drive the truck and I'm just listening to the radio traffic and making sure I get there safely. I felt like I got there literally like a snap of a finger. That's how fast I got there. 
and we pretty much went right into establishing our perimeter or whatnot. Obviously, we couldn't commit to the scene when I was, you know, it's not our, our wheelhouse at that point. And it was on the corner, which became the casualty collection point, is where everybody was starting to come out. So it, uh, some people were evacuating, closing down the roads, and I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say as far as how long the time frame was, but it, it felt like a couple of minutes that I stopped myself in the, in the middle of the intersection and I grabbed my phone and said, holy shit, my daughter. So I, I started going through my phone. By that time, the media was all over the place and I had people texting me from all over. My buddies back home in New York were texting me and is everything okay? I hope you're doing okay. You know, all the thoughts and prayers were already coming out and I was just like, you know, scroll down to Tracy and, um, I texted her, I says, where's Tori, is she okay, or, or something along those lines, and put the phone back in my pocket and was going right back to work. Like I said, people were coming, parents were coming up to us, and it, it, I don't want to say for less of a lack of a better word, it's a little bit of a shit show because there was people coming at us from all angles. Oh, and every scene is a shit show, you know, even like the small that. ones. And so, you know, obviously units are coming in, you're trying to point to people and, and, and whatnot, so I go back to my phone, she responds to me, says, Tori's okay, and then follow back, just says she can't find Joaquin. So at that point, I'm like, ah. and at that, at that point, people were starting to be brought out. The cops were bringing people out. Um, you know, so I'm putting, trying to put eyes on people because I, I was actually assigned accountability on the scene, which really wasn't like accountability. That was by no means a true MCI type run incident whatsoever. So you, I was a little bit all over the place. I, I tell everybody that if at some point, it's like the first 10 minutes into the scene or something like that, where, uh, if you see when you watch a movie and they focus on the individual and everything else around you spins and that kind of blurry type look, I said, that's how it felt for a little while. For a little while, I was just going through the motions. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, you know, trying to gear people in, trying to trying to be a leader, you know, as a, as a chief on the scene or acting chief, trying to give the crews some some confidence and people coming over. I was consoling kids that were crying and asking why. I said, again, you're dealing with people coming at us from all different angles. So... Again, at the same time as people are being brought out, I'm trying to put eyes on, on her. I, I don't, you know, that's where I think there's a little bit of, I don't say survivor's guilt that I have, where I, I think that there is some guilt there where I didn't, you know, her, her thought was a snapshot, and I went right to, to mode. You know, it wasn't maybe there was something subconsciously that I knew she was okay. You just uh, can't can't describe what that what that was or or why I did what I did, but you know, that's a little bit of survivor's guilt that I think that I have is just. Knowing that I didn't have, because I had the ability, you know, I was in a truck by myself. I could have drove my damn truck right into that, uh, right into that building, you know, had I known and or or, or stopped it, you know. That's where the, uh, I don't want to say the hero act comes in, where you start, you know, here we are, three years later, shoulda, woulda, coulda, what could I have done, you know, tying the whole thing together. It's just, you know, your mind is just uh, goes in a lot of different directions too. So I know that may not be the best explanation. I mean, there's, there are little things that I can remember, but there's some things I just, I just don't. People yeah. will tell me. I, they said I was doing everything very well, and I just I remember it was a cloudy. It was cloudy for a while. Well, firstly, with the with the guilt of knowing knowing Tori was okay, it's something I talk about a bit, uh, quite a bit now. I think a lot of us go in a flow state when it's an acute, really serious event. You have no choice but to have that myopic focus because at that point, you know, it wasn't just your daughter's life that rested on. The actions of you and the men and women on scene it was an entire high school picture. full of kids yeah so 
you shouldn't feel guilty. You have that snapshot. She's okay. All right, well, then I got to go back in. It's after that we have the adrenal dump, the processing, the survivor's guilt, you know, whatever it looks like. But I think it's, it's important. If we stayed in that emotional state, we'd be terrible firefighters, police officers, dispatchers, you know. So that's what makes us who we are and was the driving force between behind your colleagues looking from the outside in and seeing you do a good job because if you took that emotional element and brought it within you you wouldn't be able to function as a bc or an no, ic well in, in that capacity i could see that I mean, it's um i was going to mention something the <sighs> crap um uh, i lost my train of thought maybe uh maybe we'll circle back to it i just uh that's what it was. It was the emotional side of it for me. It really didn't come out until we started doing this documentary or the documentary came out. I mean, I would have some moments, but even that, even that day, we did the big therapy session afterwards, the debriefing, if you will, after the incident. And, you know, some of the people that I, that I was seeing, you know, obviously people crying and my fellow coworkers were crying. And I didn't kind of feel, I don't know what I felt, but I wasn't feeling the sorrow or any of the, overwhelming aspect maybe i was still jacked up at that time but uh even afterwards because i had met her at the hotel afterwards once the debriefing was gone i, I hauled ass to the to the hotel where they were doing the the uh, notifications if you will or, or whatnot and i come in it's just you know that eerie silence so i would people ask me why i subjected myself to that misery because they and to put that in perspective is hearing a parent scream when they've been notified that their child child is you know is no longer with us that, that's something that resonates. That's, that's with me forever. You know, so that scream is just something you, you, I don't know. You'll never get rid of it. You know, and I can still hear it to this day. And I even know the family. And I won't mention the name, but I, I know the family of the notification that's still stuck in my head. So, um, but part of me felt drawn to be there. But it wasn't to, after the, like I said, we had the documentaries where they want to talk about it. But it, seeing the documentary brought it fresh. So I couldn't even have a discussion on stage. It would ask me certain questions. And I would have a hard time really conveying any kind of thought. Getting it out, I would just lose my shit. I would just start crying and, you know, have a hard time conveying anything of support because people are asking, you know, they want to, they want them to, I guess, learn or try to understand and just try to give them some perspective and maybe give a little guidance, help, whatever it was. And I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to make sense of something like that. You're not going to. Yeah. Like we were talking about before. You, you have to reverse engineer back to birth of the individual to really find the foundation of that. Um, a friend of mine, made entry on that scene he was there with a um from a mental health perspective um ended up kind of being grabbed and asked hey can you help with this a horrific scene you know I'm, I'm, i don't have to paint any picture for anyone i certainly don't need to get you guys to relive that but it's such an important point some of the most haunting things that i've had as a firefighter and a medic are the voices of the people left behind which is you know another huge thing I think what's I really got from the documentary because it's all James Gearing that was nowhere near got to really see inside and it was a very well made piece was these children went through these horrendous things you're sitting in front of me now and again thank you so much for for sitting here but you guys had to live that you had to carry that and yet it immediately became politicized. And there's all these children who had their world turned upside down, all these parents that had their world turned upside down, these teachers, 
and responders who had their worlds turned upside down and immediately it became a for against weapons you know and it nauseated me being a you know a few hours north of you guys seeing this unfold myself in the documentary and you have to i forgive me i forget the gentleman's name but one of your classmates was asked to go to the white house six days later and talk do a press conference president gave him a thumbs up you know one of the parents a thumbs up like yeah we got this i'm not left or right i just can't stand a lack of compassion whatever tie you're wearing blue red whatever um so kind of talk me through the next few days you're grieving everyone that you lost you know again from your perspective as well what there should have been was space compassion kindness love what and i'm not kind of trying to sway or wait this question but what what did you as children of parkland what did you actually experience the next couple of weeks after that i think that for me thinking back to that it feels like there was absolutely no choice in what was what the movement was who was where even if someone disagreed or not disagreed but if someone was for weapons the way that it was portrayed and shoved down these kids' throats, everyone was now, okay, anti-gun. We didn't even have a second to make our own opinions either or grieve for a second. Yeah, we did I mean, not even have a second. Now's not a time to, to, to legislate. No, no. Now's a time to grieve and process. I can remember mm-hmm. that I can remember saying, people would ask me about this, about guns. People were asking me, okay. But I remember saying, what about mental health? I remember even from the beginning, I was like, my first priority is mental health. Because I knew from the get-go, this kid is not well, okay? A well person with a gun is not going to do that. So the, the question is not guns. The question is the person and their mental health. That, that is, that's the question. Um, but I think that, I mean, personally, I was swayed. I mean, we were all, that's what I'm saying. We didn't have a choice. We were all very swayed um, into that because I also think that it was somewhat of a coping mechanism for a lot of people to just throw themselves into something. Just channel that. Just say, what what am I going to do? I'm going to do something. You know, for me, I was swayed a lot, not in a bad way, but definitely influenced by Joaquin's family themselves. Uh, I mean, they took their time, not took their time, more time, I would say to grieve uh, more time, meaning like a couple days than the media. Um, but then they were right on to creating their own organization about that specifically. So, yeah, and that the they're ref. still working on change the ref. Yeah, yeah. Change the ref. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, so then I felt also obligated to do that. I didn't even realize in myself that this isn't really me. This is just what I feel like I have to do. And I think that's where a lot of kids were. And which is why the movement might have slowed down a little now is because people were just so amped up on all of this emotion and we were forced to channel it that way. Um, could be helpful for some people. For me, I am I have a different standpoint now. So I look back and I, I don't regret anything that I did, but I know that if I were, were to have made my own decisions, I wouldn't have done what I did. Um, but I do know that talk is good, but it needs to be about the right thing, like we were saying. Um, and I think that there still hasn't been the correct conversation about what happened. Um, I do plan to, when I'm ready, speak out about mental health and specifically without 
treading on anything, but specifically this individual and my thoughts, because I think that they're very different than a lot of people who went through this, because I'm able to see it from, I guess, a third point perspective, which is healthy, and I, I, I don't know, difficult, but necessary in my world to find some kind of acceptance, some kind of not forgiveness, but that's what I'll call it to understand. Um, yeah, mental health is my conversation. <laughs> so let me change that, that question now. So what, and I'll ask Anthony the same thing too, that's what happened. What should have happened? In the ideal world, knowing everyone that was on there, whether they were adults or school kids, what should those first few weeks have looked like? Therapists everywhere. Um, support groups, um, just meetings of people, like just, we, we only needed each other. There were therapists, but I will say that there was no effort in getting the proper therapists at school. Um, they were trained in three days, trauma trained in three days before coming into our school and trying to tell us what we need to do, um, I remember being taken out of my class by a therapist and him saying, you know, I know a lot about you. Like, that's someone else, that he heard something from someone else. And I was like, that's the first thing you're going to say to me is you know about me and you know that I'm having a hard time. Or I don't even know what he was saying. And he's like, the second thing was, well, what are your triggers? Like, he had absolutely no boundaries. He had absolutely no knowledge of how to handle um, a traumatized child, a child that was 17. Um... I just, what should have happened? Let's go. I'm going back. I was. No, go. Tangent away, Um, please. Seriously, just, I can see like, in my head, I'm seeing what should have happened. And it's circles of people, uh, hugs. And there were a lot of hugs and there was a lot of talk. I just, more compassion, really. And there was an overflow of love from the entire world. I, I can't deny that, that people from Australia and Germany and wherever are reaching out to me, finding my page specifically to tell me that they're proud of me or that they send me thoughts and prayers and, and whatnot. But I don't even know, man, it really just shouldn't have been what it was because it also forced a lot of people to grow up. Of course, the situation itself forced all of these kids out of innocence and purity, I would say, but to then force them to actually, okay, you're going to be a leader now. You're not going to take care of yourself. You're going to go and take care of an entire community. Um, it, it felt like a huge responsibility um, when really there just should have been a huge pause because there was no... I understand time doesn't wait for anyone and life goes on, but it for a com- an entire community to be affected and for there not to be any moment of silence they're okay there were like minutes but there should have been a pause there should have been hey let's regroup for a second we all just know what happened and how can we help each other instead of oh now we we have to change the entire world like first we have to start small we have to start with ourselves before we there's no handing a cup over to someone without filling it for yourself first so it really just should have started with one person at a time like what do you need what can we do for you 
not what can you do with this. That comes later on. That that is necessary. I understand everyone has their purpose afterwards and what they want to do with this pain. But first, you have to process the pain. You have to because now there are people. A friend of mine, three years later, is finally saying, which I understand, it's going to take years for a lot of people. But she's like, you know what? There's a lot of things that I think I need therapy for. I'm like, great, let's do it. Like, let's talk about it. Uh, let's do it. Uh, but people thought that just talking about weapons was going to help them. And it's actually talking about your feelings that are going to help you. Uh, so, yeah, more love. Yeah. That's, a, that's the moral of the story. <laughs> well, and thank you for that perspective because that's not what happened. And it's not blaming, especially, you know, your jurisdiction, but I saw an opportunity, a political opportunity that was swooped upon the same way as this last 12 months. Yeah. We've seen that multiple times, mm -hmm. whether it's race, law enforcement, COVID, you know. And in the meantime, people are dying on the streets. People are dying, you know of not only COVID, but obesity and everything else. And we talked about it before we were recording, you know, this, the human and compassionate element is lost by the polarization of some of these narratives. So Anthony, from your perspective, so you were not only a father, you responded that day. What should those following few weeks look like, not only for Tory, but for the responders as well? Well, the responders, we'll start with the responders. We were, uh, we were, were and are pretty good about um, mental health. We were definitely staying on top of it. Um, 2018 was actually a, a tough year for me and actually for our department. But uh, to get back to it is we were prepared. We had clinicians that came out in full force afterwards. But we were we were pretty good about that. Chief Babnick at the time was, you know, always worried. Not say always, definitely worried about mental health. For, for the members. Uh, so it, that, that was well. It wasn't an issue to implement that for us. It was there. You know, it gets to a point where um, there was so much of it that people didn't want to have that conversation. So it's, they had to, we made it, they had to sit in the room. They didn't have to have a conversation, but they had to be in the room and, and take part in the, in the event. But, um, but there was, that was too much. So that's how well prepared that we were for it. We had a <laughs> plenty, at least for that. We, <laughs> we smothered the people, and they're still there, and they're great people. And you know, my can hats off to Bader and 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 the chief at the time for getting us where we are with that. They're still doing great. But as far as the community goes, it's uh, it, it was definitely a hurry up, and something needs to be done, and which push people in into different groups. I think um, it was already divided. unnecessarily. Yeah. You know, you, you split people for gun violence or anti-gun violence and gun reform, and then there's a morning, and then there's March for Our Lives, and all these political, it seemed like the political aspect of the event overran everything, if, if you can kind of think of it that way. I mean, trying to take a look at it, because I'm not, I'm not a political person by any means. I'm not a, a gun person, but you know, I understand both sides of it, that there are some kind of changes that need to be, but the overall event, it didn't have to happen so quickly. You know, um, I mean, maybe a tragic event for us is when you have something like that, it's a different perspective for the community to say, oh, well, what do we do? But there were other events that took place that we could have learned from. But to my knowledge, and I can't back this up 100%, but to my knowledge that people didn't ask, this is what happened to us. What, what could we do to help the people? You know, and even to this day, there's not even a memorial. I mean, there is a memorial, but thanks to Tori and Ms. Riovan, one of the teachers, they created the garden. Official. Not official, but... <laughs> 
the, the garden on the corner of the school is the only place that on Valentine's Day that people can go and, and pay their respects. And that was where you, when they were doing the walkout initially, you didn't go, but that was the garden they walked to where you did show up in the documentary? In the doc- I don't know if it was... They, they were doing the walkout? No, I think the walkout went to uh, Pine Trails at the time. The garden was created Christmas Eve of 2018. Okay, so it probably wasn't the same one. Um, just a teacher. Well, just a teacher. One of the teachers. Uh, just a teacher. No, <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, Barely she's actually a like... Sorry, Ro. <laughs> she's <laughs> a good friend of mine. She's my neighbor. Yeah, she, she lives down the street from us. Great. Uh, she was in the second classroom that was attacked. And so she has that experience and i have mine and we connected very deeply after that um but she just called me christmas eve i'm sitting with the family and she's like there's nothing there there's nothing that we have let's just go put like fake flowers down and she's poking them into the ground and i'm like what the hell why don't we just dig up the ground and like plant something let's actually put it here so it can grow let's invite everyone out and do it we didn't have any permission whatsoever i just said Fuck it. I'm going to do it. Just to show yeah. you, before she gets into it, but to show you the mindset of the community, it was the principal was giving him a hard time. He well, literally said take it would be an eyesore. He just told to go me to show you that, the, you know, the mindset. And this is, I mean, it's a few months later, but still, you know, it was, it was I was dumbfounded by some of the responses of, of whatnot. And, and there's still, to this day, there's still nothing. I don't say nothing. I keep saying nothing. But there's, you know, if you go to Sandy Hook and they have certain areas uh, that are dedicated, and we still don't have that yet. We still got to look at the damn building that's still up because they, they won't take it down yeah. yet because it's a freaking crime scene and they need it for evidence. Even now? It's still up. Yeah, still really? It. It's needed for evidence. Well, it's still we'll, get sitting. In, we'll get into that in a second. But Sorry. You, so finish up with project. Sorry, I totally derailed that. Well, it's just okay. go and get to that. So, so I want to hear about the garden. But again, the opposition to that, we talked about, you know, finding yourself jumping into a cause and that cause ends up being politicized isn't actually i just finished um interviewing a friend yesterday he has a garden that looks like this mm. this jungle behind us beautiful piping music i don't know where the speakers were it's like being <laughs> on a resort somewhere but that's his happy place so why not give the kids the garden yep. the memorial yep. to be that focus it rather doesn't, than doesn't have to be at the school i mean it's there it's tough to find a nice and be at peace and, and pay respects and then you look up and you see the building there so it's literally absolutely. right in front I mean, of it but that's but the only something place that better I than have. nothing because yeah. we've gone there we go there we maintain it you know i found some healing there myself going you know project grow love and that's try to called. spread and do all that good stuff <laughs> so i'm stealing your thunder sorry babe. <laughs> sorry your dad was rudely interrupted <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry for the folks He's listening i apologize I, just, I get a little excited about it too i'm sorry <laughs> yeah it was actually something that really motivated me that was something that helped me a lot um knowing that I was inviting the community out to do it also, it was like an uproar of support at that point. Like, oh, finally we have somewhere to go and we have something to actually do to take part in it. And, and was it therapeutic doing oh, yeah, that too? Yeah, yeah, digging in the dirt and, and it, there's so many symbols to it as well. Um, life after death or life itself and growth and all the colors and beauty of life and all these things. Um, but I saw the the impact that it had on every kid that, that showed up there to put they felt so it was a release it was like almost like an accomplishment um they felt like they were giving back it, it was purposeful while also creating something with an even bigger purpose like there were so many little purposes in the big one um we called it project grow love because literally that's what we're doing there um i wanted to wrap the whole school in it and that's where i was like that i was told 
that's going to be an eyesore. That's actually not going to be great. And I was like, I think we just need more love. Like, let's grow it. Let's do it. Uh, I still kind of want to go little by little and extend it as I go. But uh, do one at a time. They're not going to notice. <laughs> one day they're going to be yeah. completely surrounded. Yeah. What can they do? Uh, <laughs> you need more of that to go back to the original question is you need the community needed more stuff like yeah. that before it went to the the route that it did um but people were very happy with what we did so there's the people exactly the people were happy but sadly bureaucracy kind of got in the way yeah the media didn't help you know they push people in into certain things i mean i know um that's a whole conversation you can have a a, you know an hour conversation on on that particular topic but it's maybe part of it and i don't want to not discredited that I was going to mention over the magnitude of the the incident you know 34 people total you know 17 and 17 I never want to forget the injured because that's another dynamic Absolutely. that has to be not they survive shouldn't be scar. forgotten excuse me is and some of those people are a little upset but my problem is that the magnitude of the tragic event was so massive that I don't think people they needed like maybe you said it before as for something to latch onto to help themselves get through the process or to heal or to to deal with the situation you know maybe that was a factor too i'm not really sure but you know there was a couple of failures i think and i think just going back to what you said before just some some love and compassion and just taking everybody time to console and and deal with what just happened well i think an important thing and i when my friend was telling me about going into the scene where law enforcement and fire are different and law enforcement are going into an incident knowing there's a possibility that they might take a life and or lose a life. Usually fire EMS, we get there and some catastrophes happen and it's nothing to do with us. We didn't shoot the person, you know what I mean? It's it's very different. In military, you know, in, in, in war, they go into it as traumatic as it is in understanding I might kill or be killed. A high school where you're thinking about how much math sucks or whatever yeah. you're thinking Social studies. about. Yeah. And then you're in that, that event. If we can create these memorials and all these programs for our, our veterans, and rightly so, especially our combat veterans, we sure as hell need to focus on the children that, that survive these incidents. So absolutely, if red tape and bureaucracy gets in the way, you know, we're totally wrong in that. You know, you what some of these people have been through the children the teachers you know the custodians everyone that was there you know we need we need to bend over backwards to to give outlets and if a healing garden and i'll give you a funny story oregon state penitentiary i had the governor on they allowed them to start like a zen garden and they've found like you know attrition not attrition but you know the violent crime in the prison has gone down some of the reoffending levels have gone down purely because they allowed these men and women a focus to simply garden so to put a roadblock up you know and even if they don't like the original plan then say well look hey we can't go all the way around the school but we're gonna give you this this place and you know here's a little extra acreage that the city's given us you can kind of extend into so yeah i think you know that's the problem again where you lose that compassion that human side is you know the emotional toll that it took you guys you know took from you guys that has to be applied positively and i think a lot of that politics that we talk about 
just compounds the trauma again. Instead of healing, you you completely negate the healing. No, but some of it might be a choice that they made too. I mean, I don't want to discredit that. Some people that was their defining moment that was going to maybe uh, steer them down their career path or something that they, uh, you know, maybe they weren't ready to go there. And it kind of maybe you mentioned earlier as far as being forced into a spot that. Maybe you're going to go down there, down the road, and now this it's, it's here now, and now you're going to go ahead and, and maybe the political route is where I'm, yeah. I guess where I'm going. I hate to keep bringing that up into it because it seems to be the stem of a lot of, I don't want to say failures, but a lot of uh, certain situations. You're preaching to the choir, though, and that's something I talk about. Like, I'm not demonizing all. I hate the word all. It's not no. all politicians. No, but, it's not. you know, we see our profession. We see a lot of that. I mean, you know, it, the parallels between what Tory went through at school and what a lot of our men and women go through on the job are very similar. The the lack of support sometimes are very similar. The politics that gets in the way and something I talk about a lot of the work week that our first responders are working themselves to death, you know, is, is a lot of politics too. You touched on the media and even though technically right now I am the media because we're doing an interview and it's going to go, you know, public. Um, one of the biggest lacks of compassion that i've no i've seen a lot of times is there'll be an event and immediately someone's sticking a microphone into the mother hey your son just got shot how do you feel and it just is jaw-dropping because you are more concerned about your career path than what that person's just been through yeah, who's going to get the better story who's going to be you know have the better footage or whatnot, it's the, the zero compassion. I was literally going to do the same zero thing. Compassion. Oh, my God. <laughs> zero <laughs> compassion for the mother that's grieving. And not to get off topic or anything, but in our profession, you you have, and I convey this to people when I can have the conversation, good, how good and healthy it is to discuss certain topics, and, to, and especially with somebody in, in your field that she touched on a little bit earlier with one of the girls who wants to start having some therapy and, and was in the school, and having that relationship with somebody that was in the same instant, a little bit more of an understanding than, than your regular therapist. And, um, uh, crap, I totally had a... Yeah, where were you going? We talked about the media originally. So. No, it was the... Um, oh, it was how... You know, obviously we're compassionate. We can we can pull up and it probably has nothing to do with that conversation because it was going down how they, they're too worried about the story. Uh, they don't care about compassion. Where. We see a lot of tra- trauma, so it's easier for us to compa- uh, pass along that compassion and I convey that to people. That's where I was going is that we witness it on a, on a regular basis, so it's easier for us to blow crap off and say, hey, you know what? That's not really important. Focus on some of the positive things in life because you know, we see people at their worst. Yes. And so it's a different perspective as opposed to the person with the microphone. He just, like we said before, I'm, I'm repeating myself, is the... All he cares about is the story because, as you said, it's the career path that they're worried about. They don't care. Zero feelings i guess you could say at that point yeah so from your perspective tori what that element did, did you because i saw you know beginning we got a snapshot of david hogg who be, kind of became the poster child for you know the media if, for lack of a better word um without again loading the question those first few weeks what was that like the media element for you i mean you saw also a snapshot in the documentary of the sidewalk full of cameras like there was not even room to walk and that was the first day back that was the first day back and every sidewalk is lined up hundreds hundreds of people just holding microphones out waiting for someone for someone anything come here come here kid get over here whatever um 
Who? It was... Whoever they can get to talk to. Atrocious. I don't use that word. <laughs> it is atrocious. I remember directing some anger. Obviously, I didn't know where to put it at the time, but it was... It had come out towards them in a lot of ways because of the insensitivity and just disrespect. I mean, for us, one, to be going back to school two weeks later, 14 days later. And what was the decision, just just to interject, why why so soon? It seemed like soon to me who someone is, you know, not someone. We were all confused. We were all confused. We just took 12 months off school. Yeah. Virtual because of a virus. Yeah. And yet you have a mass shooting that, as you mentioned, killed 17, injured seven or wounded 17, excuse me. And two weeks later, you're going back to school. Do do you know the root of that? I have no idea. Uh, A lot of my anger was also mainly directed at administration, um, which I think, honestly, side note, might have been my healthiest decision (laughs) at that time. Uh, But. I didn't understand a lot of the decisions that they made, uh, but I just did what was good for me. Uh, the only reason that I went back to school that day was to convince one of my buddies to go. I said, you could do it. You know, if I can do it, let's go. Like, let's do it. I really was not going to. And it was kind of a team effort. Um, we really acted as backbones for each other. But, yeah, the media was the worst part. Um that really, just awful. watching the kids from my—I mean, not my—my give my, my little two cents. Sorry, for me, just sitting back looking at all that. I mean, it's—I don't say intimidating, but I. There was no privacy to even. Yeah, it was. Um, there was no time to grieve. One, there was no privacy anywhere to just have a moment. If I wanted to cry, it was like, okay, every lens is going to be on me now, mm-hmm. or because that'd be a great shot for a six p.m ridiculous absolutely ridiculous so uh, for me that was just uncomfortable and it's something that i feel like i can't even really process to this day uh, how people can lack that level of compassion like if you're human how do you i understand that's your job but there's there's a way to go about it um and i remember meeting uh jake and emily who directed the movie the documentary this is just tying into uh, what, what you're talking about. What is it? Let me see. You know, how are you talking about the moment? Literally, and that was... That. Anthony just showed me a picture of yeah. NBC is this particular one of, of you Crazy. guys grieving. And it makes a great show. And how many likes did it get? Uh, I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> let me look at it. My, I don't have my glasses. 1854 at the time. Oh, shit. It was worth it then. That's a lot Apparently, of Apparently. But I just... <laughs> well, I just sorry. I, I tied it. I don't want to look But no, but it's, it's exactly that. It's so pertinent. Because sadly, and I will get back to you, Tor, but what irks me is there are some great news agencies out there. But there are a lot that are selling advertising space. And that is the focus. And so when you have something like this, and ratings is more important than feelings, shame on you. That was a lot of what was happening. But I was about to put a little bit of a positive spin on it. Because I remember meeting the people who directed the documentary that I started. Started. I hate. That's not what I wanted to say. But that I took part in. Um and how much of a different approach that they had. They were genuine journalists who... Very nice people. Very nice. Who whole had heart to heart with us that actually sat down and said, whatever you're comfortable with, let's do. Um, they came into our homes at the hardest points 
that at the milestones at, at literally the hardest days. Um, and for some reason I still was willing to do it. Um, but it was definitely their energy a lot different than just newscasters who were in your face. Um, yeah, I think that there are people who know how to do their job and there are people who are just wanting to get paid. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, very well, insensitive though. Yeah. This goes back to who's got the better picture. Yeah. You know, the better story. But I think that it just, the invasion, that's that's what I can call it. It was quite literally an invasion on our life. And that's something that I still struggle with now is how people feel um, like they have a right to give me their two cents on like the most personal parts of my existence because of how broadcasted my life was at that point because... Joaquin's face was everywhere and everyone wanted to know about him and then it's like okay well where is his family and and how how much pain is his girlfriend in and and all of these things and and people wanted so much from me and people still feel the right to come up to me there was a woman who came up to me asking well what do you think he's gonna feel when you move on or whatever like crazy questions that I'm like lady I don't even know you like who are you but because of the way that my life was shown to the world people feel that they have special permission to dig deeper, um, which is why sometimes I struggle doing things like this, but I do trust you and I appreciate your uh, authenticity. I can feel it. Uh, But there are people who scare me because they're going to ask me awful things that they just want to see me cry or they want the worst things um, or they just want to know information that should just be mine. Like there's a lot of things that are out there that I would never want out there. And so it's really difficult. It was definitely an invasion of space, of privacy, um, complete disrespect. And I can just make the best of it now. I mean, I have created my own platform with that and and have turned a positive spin on it as well um, with my art. And, and I post a lot of positive messages and people are very inspired by my ability to shape shift the situation and to say, you know, I can choose to sit in a corner all day. I very well could be doing that right now, but all we have is this moment. So what am I going to really do with it? Um, and I, I definitely, everything happens for a reason and I don't regret what happened as far as media. I do wish that it went down differently, but I was able to really, really make the best of it. So there's that. Yeah. Well, I want to close with one more kind of thought process. Um, I want to actually about two things. First, people talk about you know the the kind of journey mentally. How, you know what what did work for you? I mean, I'm gonna say work, not like it's fixed now, mm-hmm. but you know some things that were healing. But before we do that, from both of you, and I'll ask you one at a time, what should we do to make the school safer? So with with the arguments that were thrown around, like I said, for me, there are so many layers through through my eyes. If someone asked me this question, it would be the mental health element. You know, it would be parenting. It would be, it, it, it amazes me that people will go home and relax after a work day and watch Saw. A bunch of people being mutilated and tortured mm-hmm. and oh, finally let off some steam. Mm-hmm. I watched 12 people die. I feel better now. So, the, the, you know, we have to question ourselves. Why do we like that? You know, grand theft oil and all these things. Um, but there's also, you know, with the gun thing, I'm British. I grew up where I grew up on a farm. I would be allowed to have shotguns, and that was about it. So I had guns, not anti-gun, 
but then I was amazed when I went to Gander Mountain in the UK in the US and watched you know like five year olds playing with semi automatic weapons and fifty cows up on the wall. There's a there's a middle ground where the average person you know maybe shouldn't be able to get the entire spectrum of military grade mm -hmm. weapons. So it's not black or white. There's a there's a there's a happy medium to me personally. And then for me again with the SRO, the right person in the role, I think that's a great deterrent. I think a lot of, you know, school murderers would be deterred by the right person in the right uniform at the right door. So starting with you, Tori. Politics aside, if if you could king for or queen for a day, excuse me, um, what should we do to make our schools safer? I think it does start with mental health. Um, I think it needs to be taken more seriously in school. Um, that someone who's behaving, let's say, quote unquote, wrongly, I don't know what else to call it, behaving, misbehaving, all right, misbehaving. Um, I think that there should be people, teachers who can see that as an opportunity to help someone rather than to push them further down. Um, I think that that's huge in school. I always saw that as like the loud kid or, or the goofball is made to feel worse and is to be punished rather than, well, what's making you act this way? Why do you feel this way? Why do you feel the need to be the loudest in the room are you neglected at home like there are so many things that go into that uh that's that are very quickly overlooked um i think that it really starts with that uh because even at school there were at my school there were programs for what like the promise program and different things that kids were thrown into but there was no real support it's just, I'm going to put you in this group, I'm going to label you, and now you're in a box, and you can't do anything else, and you can't be anything else. And I think just mental health is a huge conversation uh, that needs to keep going. Um, but it does start with the adults that are working at school. There are so many things that you can do simply to look out for your students, to look out for your colleagues, to just be kind really that's that's my main thing i don't i don't think about yes security is a thing that's not top of my brain i do think that when i think about specific things that went wrong there were security guards who dismissed the kid himself said i'm gonna go the other way i'm gonna go get someone else i'm not gonna approach him myself i'm gonna let even though I know he's holding a rifle bag and I know he's walking into that building, I'm going to go the other way. Like, that's something like you, there needs to be people who are prepared, who have the mindset that they need to have, who have the strength needed. Um, there are so many things that were s simply solvable, but it starts with mindset. So mental health really is the top. I don't think about like fences or doors or I don't think about that stuff because I think it starts way before that. That's my spiel. Yeah. No, and I agree with you completely. It's it's the conversation of, of the militarization of police. Well, right now our police are being executed left, right and center. So if you're a cop, wouldn't you want to wear a jacket and a helmet and, you know, all that stuff? 
So, you know, what's next? Then the bad guys get armor penetrating, you know, you know what I mean? It just gets worse and worse and worse. You see that the, with the, the Mexican border. The answer is to go back to the beginning. You know, like you said, a gun is just a gun if a psychopath isn't holding it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I couldn't agree more. And I, th- I had a guy, um, Passi Solberg, on who's uh, originally from Finland, which we hold as one of the best education systems. And one of the big difference wasn't that Finnish boys and girls were just so much more intelligent. It was the teachers were basically looking at the child as a whole human being mm-hmm. and gave more support to kids that maybe didn't have the best home life and had the mental health element and had shorter days and more playtime and, you know, rather than FSAs and it seems know, so simple. 5.0 GPAs <laughs> yeah. and all this stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Seems simple. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, to thank look you at for, someone. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Don't, don't apologize. No, no. To, to think of someone as a human being is like outrageous at the in this day and age like we're all just human and and that's what it is i like that you're saying that to see someone as a whole human being shouldn't be that difficult um for me i even look at the shooter himself i see him as a human being like that's where i was going before and like i don't think that people have the same outlook as me because it's very difficult to come to that conclusion of yes he's a human being just like any of us he made decisions that maybe we don't agree with but he's still a human being and that's what it is. So I think we should see everyone as they are. And yeah, human. <laughs> yeah, so. I agree 100%. I think it's a very mature decision that shows that, you know, you've processed a lot of what you went through. You yeah. Know? Mm. Um, and I want to get to that in just yes. a moment. But <laughs> Anthony, same thing. If we, if you were king for a day, I got the sex right on this one. We <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially through a responder's lens, you know, would would it be the same thing? Would you have you got things to add? How do we make well, our children safer in twenty twenty one? Mental health obviously is a huge component, but there's a, a other areas that could be focused on. And it's not just the child or uh, or something like that. It's it is the teachers making sure they have the they're involved with their kids and they're not tuned out. Uh, engage with, I mean, it's hard. I, I, I'm an instructor on, a, on, a, on, on the fire academy side of it. So it's a little bit different, obviously, than the uh, public school system. But I try to apply the engage with the student where I can so I can teach them the best that I can and understand a little bit of that person. So if, if there's something that's not right, which might tie into mental health where I can recognize, okay, this, this person's not acting right. Something's going on. Actually care, you know, uh, caring. So as far as kind of understanding that, just treat it as another day. Okay, we're going to go with social studies today and, you know, check out and just go through your routine or your plan or whatever it is and not really buy in and, and, and engage. Maybe that has to do with you not liking your job. I don't want, I'm not labeling saying teachers don't like their job, but that's a factor because if you don't really enjoy what you're doing, you know, you're not going to put out a good quality product. You're not going to pay attention to the kids and make sure they're literally learning the material you're trying to do and, and create that bond. Cause there's some teachers that can create bonds with kids from, from many, many years, you know, through their whole, their whole school career where, you know, she would go back to elementary school because of certain teachers that left an impact, you know, the, that kind of stuff is, is simple, I think. Uh, so from, Internally and externally, if you would look at it, you know, externally continue. Unfortunately, in our day and age, we're in the mindset of having to pay attention to who's coming and going in the schools. We're going to have to continue to do that uh, until we get the mindset that it, that it's 
people feel safe. It's, uh, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. It's probably, I don't want the kids to feel like a prison because then it's, that's going to that's gonna have an adverse effect too, but they still need to pay attention to who's coming and going because not to get off topic, we'll come back to it, but the, the individual that saw this guy coming in is, this, is, the, is the sole person that could have stopped this whole day. He was well within his rights to stop the individual, but being alert, and that, that maybe that, that ties into this too, is not being afraid to engage somebody that maybe doesn't belong on the property or, again, um, just even government for security or the, or the cops. You, you try to build a relationship. I mean, and today it's obviously it's a little bit hard, but pay attention to your people. Maybe, I don't know, this is, might be a stretch, but an undercover individual hanging out in the classrooms. You know, just to engage and get on their level so you might see something, say something, may play out with internally amongst the kids. I think they're doing a better job of that now, and this goes for the kids too. They see something, don't be afraid to say something. And if the littlest thing, bring it to somebody's attention. I mean, I know I kind of went around a little bit a couple different different ways, but I don't, um, I don't know if I have a, a really good... Um, solution or suggestion for a solution or my thoughts. I mean, I'm kind of, it, it is, it's so involved. It's so big. So many things can be done and, but simple things. I mean, yes, like the mental health aspect of it is, is huge. You know, uh, we just, just gotta you know, pay a little bit more attention to our youth, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you can't stop the individual that, uh, maybe doesn't like school for whatever reason. I mean, I don't totally reach in here with that, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm kind of off the beaten path there. <laughs> No, but it's it's a very powerful perspective from the two of you. And again, I thank you for, for this. Um, but absolutely, I mean, the number of incidents that have been stopped because someone challenged someone in a school because they weren't in their mind, it didn't pay out it's, like it's that. Happened. They were the powerful one. They had the weapon. And it really sickens me to think that had he challenged him, he may well have just crumpled and that would be it. You know, and instead he was able to do what he did you know, pretty much unchallenged. You know, the coach lost his life and, you know, some other people I'm sure tried to, but he'd already had the the power move by that point. So, yeah, and I think the creating an environment, I mean, like firefighters, our teachers aren't well paid. You know, they a lot of, you know, I know my son's teachers were supplying school supplies themselves and a lot of things. So, again, you have to hire the right people, but you have to give them the environment to thrive, not fail. And it's exactly the same in the first responder professions. Yeah, I um, I was going to say that uh, you only get out of this stuff what you put into it, and that could be applied anywhere. You know, um, oh god, I hate when I do that. It's, I lose my thought. I had a nice thought I wanted to mention, and maybe it'll come back to me later. But it was to tie into into that whole thing. Dang it! I well, let me ask. I'll ask Tori one more thing, and then see if it comes back to you. So, to close, you went through this horrific thing. You lost your soulmate. Um, plus, you know, a bunch of other, you know, members of your school and or friends. Of course, the dark side of that is just fucking awful, for lack of a better word. What has worked? What has helped the last few years from you get, uh, you know, for you to get from that dark place to where you are today? I'm not saying today is perfect, but you're better. You've grown. You're, you're driven now. You have your art. That's that's what I was going to start with. Uh, I remember those days after sitting in my backyard for hours on end. Like It would start to get dark out, and I didn't realize that I had been there since the morning. All I'm doing outside is painting for hours. Um, 
I got into a lot of different projects. Um, I was finally, that's when I was able to call myself an artist. I was doing it every day and I was like, why, why, you don't have to have a special certification to, I'm creating and, and this is what I'm doing. And that gave me some guidance, just calling myself that, uh, like allowing myself to step into that role. Um, I started yoga um, and I didn't even, I don't even know what brought me to that first class. I mean, spirit, something, because I remember feeling the feeling, what's the word I was looking for? The potential, not potential, the capability that I had inside of me for anything. I mean, yes, it's yoga. You're just stretching and, and doing this and that, but it's so much of a spiritual practice as well, where it challenges your brain. It challenges your body. It challenges everything. If you let it, um, I felt the strength in my body. And then I related that to the strength in my heart and it just, it really changed me. And I didn't have the thought to teach at that point. I was just like, you know what, this is something that I really love to do and I'm going to keep doing it. Um, so here I am painting, doing yoga. Um, it sent me on, honestly, just a very spiritual journey. And it's spirituality that saved me, understanding that I'm more than this body, that I'm more than the experience that happened to me, um, that I have the power to change other lives by knowing that I have a choice in how I want to react to it. Um, that I don't have to crumble, that I can when I need to. And that's also something huge is learning acceptance in, I have not accepted the situation yet, but accepting the emotions that come with it, um, accepting my humanness, embracing my humanness, uh, while also honoring that this is not all that I am. Um, and the experience is not all that I am. So... It's really it. Like, spirituality was everything. I got a bunch of crystals. I was doing just random stuff. Um, connecting to the earth. That's something that's helped me a lot is just being in nature. Um, remembering gratitude. Remembering the miracle of that one tree that's allowing you to breathe. And, and that there's just so much more than that one experience. And as much as it haunts me or as, as present as it is in my life... It is not the present moment. So I can live with it, but I'm not there. And I, I think that my self-awareness has has really helped me in this journey. Um, yeah. I could go into a lot more, but that's that's really... Yep. I don't know. <laughs> no, and you know what's, what's amazing is it, it parallels so many other people that have been on here, many of whom were soldiers, police officers, firefighters, but the same thing family tribe nature art i mean you know gratitude is a huge one so yeah i mean That's we're seeing one. these common denominators whether you're a 50 year old retired seal or you know we just came out of, of high school it's, it's it's very powerful to see that these same things are you know resonating i think mm -hmm. art is you know absolutely huge you're able yes. to focus that energy rather than some polarizing political thing yeah now you can focus your emotion same way as Joaquin does. Uh, mm -hmm. Excuse me, Joaquin's dad does. Man, yeah, yeah. Manny. So, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. And my, right. just one more thing. My creations with my, my art helps me because I send it to other people around the world and 
they're motivated by it and they want to start their healing journey and i i get by by helping others get by that's from the first day i remember the day after everyone was like why are you here i went i showed up to the vigil i don't even know how i did it and everyone's like why are you here how are you hugging everyone how are you not crying how are you i'm sitting there talking to all of his friends kind of giving them closers if you will like like don't hold on to any fight that you had and 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 really just give some kind of closure of some kind of that was also i felt being channeled but um helping others my whole life we started with this conversation that my whole life is about helping other people and realizing my purpose came from this tragedy knowing that that drive to help other people wasn't just like an idea a thought like it is my entire purpose on this earth to give back and to have processed all the pain and do something with it so now i'm done <laughs> which is beautiful because you're a miracle baby from yes, a man right? <laughs> who has the same purpose so yes <laughs> thank you so anthony same thing for you processing not only that event but i mean 20 plus years in the fire service i um I sometimes have to step back and ask myself how I, how I do it. Because as I mentioned earlier, is that you know we see a lot of stuff that the general public don't see, and sometimes on a regular basis, you know the, the tragedy was obviously in a scale by itself. But um, you know, twenty five years, twenty seven years, if you include all my time to this day, and I still have about eleven more to go before I retire. Um, You're glutton for punishment. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, I think the love for the job and 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 the the genuine want to help and do things for, for for other people is what keeps me going in the job aspect of it. But the tragedy and um, dealing with some people wanting to be strong from there, that was um, that's it's still hard. I mean, I find myself a little uh, I get lost in my thoughts because I, I kind of not kind of I I think I feel a lot of pain of everybody that's involved and people that we're close with because it's just pretty, you know, it wasn't just Tori and I um, and Joaquin. It's everybody else that we knew. I live in the city. I work for the city. I see a lot of people. So, you, and, and, you know, we, we know the parents of several of the victims and um, it's kind of hard to, uh, to, to deal with that kind of stuff going forward. But I think what's helped me a lot through that is Tori is, has been amazing as far as, and if you've seen any of the interviews and or whatnot, especially after the documentary releases, the, the way they describe how her inner strength, her poise, pose, poise, however you say that word, or whatnot has given other people strength to do certain things. And, you know, we've bounced a couple of things off of each other because of our obviously unique connection to this. And, um, and I think that's what's helped me a lot, and I still have my moments. We live two two blocks from the school, so and I work obviously in the same city. So those constant triggers, those constant reminders, are going to be there until the day we are able to leave this area when the time is right and put that page behind you. But I I know I got off track a little bit, but it was kind of just I think the love for the job, and I, I still love what I do, and being there for the com- community, and you know it's just not too many people still like this job you know they're not in it for the right reasons i think when i finally got into it I, you know it's just what i wanted to do and 
and I do it for the right reason. I think that just keeps me driving, keeps me strong. Because I don't, I still haven't had that moment to where you know I was kind of maybe the first year or so, maybe numb to it, to where uh, the second or third year I was just kind of waiting for the bottom to fall out. But it, it hasn't, it hasn't come. And other than those moments, as I mentioned earlier, where after the documentary and you asked me specific questions, I wouldn't have this conversation or this wouldn't happen right now. If I had watched the documentary and then we could try to have a conversation, it just wouldn't. Cause I just, that pain that I feel, not hers, but everybody's, you know, you know, I, I don't want to put it all on her. My wife is definitely the rest of the family and I'm, I don't want them to be that they're forgotten. I mean, it's obviously that's what family is all about. And maybe there's a hidden strength there that's guided us through, that's kept us strong as well. Beautiful. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end. I just want to thank you both. You know, it's been such a powerful conversation. It's such an important perspective. I mean, the dynamic of, of the both of you, the value that it has for everyone else, whether it's related to an event in a school a first responder, a civilian that only got the Fox CNN version of Columbine, Parkland, you know, Sandy Hook. Um, it's important and completely, you know, uh, just not imperative. Forget. Yeah. You just can't, you can't, you can't forget. No. You, you gotta, and, uh, that's all I was going to mention earlier is just continue on years down the road. Don't forget these people, you know, especially the survivors. Well, and let's fucking fix this thing too. Excuse my language, but I mean, I, I get so angry. You know, was it, People, is it Einstein said insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results? You know, you've done your little protests about pro and anti guns. It hasn't done a damn thing. Our children are still dying in the schools, you know, and amongst, you know, everything else. So it's time that we step up, get uncomfortable, have these kind of conversations and honor the ones that we lost by fixing this. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. So, well, thank you both. I mean, Tori, you know, I, I hate pulling people through what they went through, but the number of people, the thousands of people that are going to hear this, the ripple effect of your story today, I'm very selfish because I didn't have to relive anything really. You guys did, but I just appreciate your courage. I appreciate your trust. And just thank you for being so generous and telling your story today. No problem. Like thank I said, I, I believe it's healthy to have the conversation. I don't, you know, don't, don't, don't bottle up. And that's kind of, kind of my thing to everybody is don't be afraid to have that conversation a little bit. You know, you, you got to, that's that compassion that we talked about right in the very beginning. It has to stay there. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you.